My name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. In this episode, we turn our attention to Brexit, and specifically how the policy landscape in the EU and UK will evolve now that the Brexit transition period is over. That transition ended on December 31st, heralding the start of a new relationship between the EU and UK. The question is how that relationship will play out for derivatives markets. While an 11th hour trade agreement was announced on December 24th, there was no arrangement to allow broad market access for financial services, just a commitment to agree a memorandum of understanding on regulatory cooperation by March. What will this MOU mean, and could it pave the way towards further equivalence decisions? While the UK has granted equivalence to the EU in several areas, the EU has so far provided only temporary equivalence for UK CCPs and central securities depositories. How will EU and UK priorities change now that that transition period is over? What will the longer-term relationship between the EU and UK ultimately look like? To help untangle all of this, I'm joined by Scott Imalia, is the CEO. So, Scott, let's get straight to the nub of the issue. What is it the derivatives market would like to see? Thanks, Nick. In short, we would like to see an effective framework that really allows for the cross-border trading of derivatives, like they were pre-Brexit. Now, there have been a few examples of equivalence decisions, notably in the uh, CCP space, and that's time-limited. But equivalence between the EU and the UK is really lacking, and we don't really have a strong framework to figure out how that's going to happen. So one example that we're dealing with now is the derivatives trading. Any absence of trading venue equivalence has meant that the EU and UK firms are really no longer able to trade certain liquid derivatives with each other, resulting in operational complexity and and market fragmentation. Now, while the UK FCA announced some temporary relief back in December 31st to actually allow trading on the EU venues in some limited circumstances, The initial feedback suggests that some of the EU-UK businesses begin to shifting their trading to U.S. swap execution facilities, which is really kind of a perverse outcome. Now, this is not ideal for either the UK or the EU, and we think that a robust, transparent equivalence framework is really the best way to solve these types of issues. So let's talk more about the factors that will influence this and how EU and UK priorities will shape the future relationship for financial services. Our guest today is Donald Ricketts, Managing Director and Head of Financial Services at Fleischmann Hillard. Donald has had years of experience advising clients on government relations and public policy in Europe, including ISTA. And so I'm sure he has a really good sense of which way the wind is blowing in Brussels and London. Scott, you're going to be question master, so let me hand over the baton. Thanks, Nick. Donald, a very warm welcome to the swap. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, a trade deal between the EU and the UK was announced on Christmas Eve of all days, just days before the end of the Brexit transition at the end of the year. Now, was this trade deal more or less what was expected, and and what were the surprises as you see them? Well, firstly, thanks for having me, Scott. I think when it comes to the final deal on Brexit, the important thing to say at the outset on expectations was there's absolutely no guarantee that there'd be a deal in the first place. So to the extent that there was one and the deal got across the line in December, there was a collective sigh of relief. When it comes to the actual contents of the agreement, I think everyone was realistic that from the UK's perspective, this negotiation was first and foremost about achieving sovereignty. Therefore, there was always going to be a step back in terms of 
the UK's continued access to the EU and the European financial system. Of course, from the EU's perspective, there's also going to be a focus on ensuring the UK experience sufficiently dissuasive cost impact in terms of reduced access from ending membership of the club. So where we landed in the final deal was very much in line with expectations. It was bare bones, free trade agreement, focused very much on trading goods. You saw the level playing field provisions or rebalancing mechanism, as they call it, to address potential distortions which could arise in the future around state aid, environmental, social protections, tax transparency. It has headline grabbing zero tariffs, zero quotas, but ultimately, the level of friction at the border in terms of non-tariff barriers is going to be comparable with a no-deal scenario, as we're experiencing now. You're seeing the frustrations. On the UK side, they did achieve what we all knew were their defensive priorities in terms of exiting the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, ending freedom of movement for people coming across borders from the EU, and leaving the EU's customs union and with it collective bargaining on future trade deals. And they did gain the right to diverge in regulation in areas which have previously been under EU law in the UK. So you asked where that leaves us on financial services, and that's, that's really another question. As I say, it was very much good focus, the final agreement. And you'll have noticed that the deal effectively prioritised that cross-border access for goods and left financial services very much with a minimalist framework. So on financial services, we had supervisory MOUs, which were put in place at a supervisory level ahead of Brexit to facilitate things like data sharing, enforcement, cooperation. And there was this declaration of intent by the EU and the UK to establish a new MOU to govern regulatory cooperation in the future. But beyond this, both sides came out of this negotiation having not really committed to anything further for the sector They've kept all of their cards when it comes to the ability to take unfettered unilateral decisions on whether market access is granted or not. And of course, in the context of derivatives markets, this has already led to what we've seen, market fragmentation, significant uncertainty for uh, what's going to happen in the future on market structure here. Yeah, let's come back to those specific questions. But as you noted, it is a bare bones deal. And there is a commitment regarding this MOU on regulatory cooperation. It is set to be kind of unveiled or decided possibly by March of 2021. How important will this be and what do you think it might cover? So Scott, what I'd say is it's important to distinguish that MOU on future cooperation from those supervisory MOUs, which I just mentioned, which are already in place. So this yet to be established MOU is really set to put in place a similar framework to the one which currently governs the dialogue between the US and the EU on financial services. It's a framework which ultimately is a voluntary dialogue. It's more of a political commitment by both sides to keep on talking, to channel that dialogue. So really the ambition and the extent of this future UK-EU dialogue, ultimately it's going to be a function of the appetite on both sides. So it's going to take two to tango. The question will be how much advanced thinking on policy issues they see in their mutual interest to share as well as their appetite to resolve market access concerns or conflicts via this channel. Very much a voluntary framework. So we're not expecting it to include any kind of firm commitments when it comes to questions around pre-notifications or pre-consultations on market access decisions or policy thinking. You'd hope in a grown-up world, both sides will want to maintain close channels of communication 
And out of that communication, organically, trust and respect should build up over time. But in a world where the UK and EU are increasingly going to see themselves as systemic economic rivals, no amount of dialogue is going to compensate for that fundamental difference in perceived strategic interests. Well, that's not particularly encouraging, but I do think uh, keeping that dialogue open is critical. I think you mentioned talking, probably a lot of listening has to go on as well. One of the things we are dealing with, and you alluded to this in a previous response, was the issue of the share trading and derivatives trading obligation. As we think about this, this is playing out now, you know, where shares and derivatives are going to be traded, what the impacts are, are going to be. We're beginning to see and hear about uh, derivatives being transacted on CEFs. And unless a deal is kind of sorted out between the UK and the EU, that that could continue to carry on unless they they come up with a, an equivalence decision or some some other solution. What do you think the outlook on this might be? Okay, so I think we just need to pick up from what I was just saying around strategic rivalry in the economic domain. I wouldn't want us to draw the conclusion that the UK and EU are going to be in endless conflict. There are going to certainly be areas where there will be cooperation, I'd say particularly in the area of foreign policy, defense, security. Here they see highly convergent interests in the short, medium, long term. But we have to be totally honest when it comes to the economic sphere, there is going to be strategic rivalry. So when we as market participants talk about resolving outstanding issues around derivatives, share trading, we just have to step back, remind ourselves we're entering into a materially new political relationship between the UK and the EU. So while the UK was part of the EU, clearly on the European side, there was this preparedness to outsource a substantial proportion of European financial market activity to London. That's simply not going to be the case in the post-Brexit, post-divorce world. Europe ultimately wants to rebalance away from this, what it sees as a dependency relationship on London. It wants to do this for multiple reasons. There are geopolitical reasons. As you know, we're in this new age of great power politics globally, particularly between the US and China. Europe wants to be able to stand on its own two feet in a manner commensurate with owning the world's second largest reserve currency. There are financial stability reasons. In crisis times, Europe wants to be able to control the levers which determine the stability of the European financial system. There are sovereignty reasons, not least, you know, if we had this continued dependency relationship between the UK and the EU, the EU will feel limited in its capacity to take policy decisions, which would result in material divergences from the UK. And will it either create a competitive disadvantage for European players, where they remain integrated but operating under different regimes, or on the other side, it would expose the European economy from being shut up abruptly, from being integrated with the UK financial system. So there are all those pretty substantive, clear reasons. But of course, finally, Europe sees this as a once-in-a-generation opportunity to wrestle financial activity out of London for outright commercial reasons. So when we talk about solving industry issues, we need to view those issues very much through the prism of Europe's new strategic objectives in this case, in the financial sphere, to unseat the UK's incumbent status in euro trading and clearing when it comes to cash and derivatives markets. So what are issues 
from our perspective, aren't necessarily issues when viewed purely from a European geopolitical perspective. Rather, they're simply the inevitable costs which arise from change on the path to achieving Europe's onshoring of these uh, cash and derivatives markets. And here again, we need to look at these markets separately, and they are very different in the dynamics which play out across them. When it comes to the cash equities, European decision makers, I think, would classify the outcome post-Brexit as being quite the opposite of a problem issue. I mean, they would rather see this relocation of 6 billion euros of daily share trading from London to the EU as representing, what, half of UK share trading? They say that is an out-and-out success story. So then we need to look at derivatives markets. As I said, we need to think about the differences in dynamics there. It's evident the established position globally of market infrastructures in London when it comes to swaps and the open interest which market participants have with those infrastructures are not going to be as mobile as the cash markets. And that's already been recognized by the decision on the EU side to introduce this temporary equivalence for UK CCPs. But as is also evident from your question, there are broader issues with respect to derivatives markets, particularly this derivatives trading obligation. They weren't resolved before the end of last year. And the result has been one of important market fragmentation. Difficulties, particularly for branches of EU firms based in the, in the UK. And here, I do expect these issues uh, to remain. I do not see any short-term appetite to resolve these, given these geostrategic factors identified earlier. And I'm sorry, ultimately managing these new costs brought about this by these new fragmentary measures is just going to become part of the new norm. You mentioned the different outcomes around share trading versus derivatives, and it would kind of be a perverse outcome that derivatives might end up more being traded on CEFs in, in the U.S., and that's clearly a different relationship, as you pointed out, versus the equities and, and cash markets that seem to have moved across. Let's talk about the CCP question. Now, we did have a, an 18-month um, relief period that extended this to make sure that we did not have a kind of a risk crisis. Um, CCPs are clearly different than trade execution, and we want to make sure that the costs, the risks are appropriately managed. And uh, I think both parties were wise to to delay this decision until we got through the Brexit question one way or another. Now we know what the end result will be. And we need to put this in your, as you noted, the strategic rivalry. So what are your expectations for this decision after 18 months of uh, reprieve for CCP exposure? Are they going to continue to insist and ensure that CCPs move that exposure and those customers to the continent? Well, Scott, I think we have to just pick up from what we were just discussing regarding those EU longer-term objectives around developing EU-based market infrastructure to manage this full value chain in the financial system, euro trading, clearing and settlement across cash and derivatives markets. So that temporary equivalence you referred to for UK CCPs last year, that should be seen as a staging post on the path to that objective by the EU, not as a signal that Europe in any way was relinquishing or having second thoughts on that objective. I'd say a way to think of it, it is a bit like looking at a high jumper who's realized they just need to back up a bit, take a much longer run up if they want to get over the bar. 
So on the question of the level of determination on the EU side and their proactivity in terms of developing domestic Euroswaps clearing, the Commission's recently announced this intention to create a formal working group to consider ways to facilitate the transfer of exposures from CCPs in the UK to the EU. They're also due to look at the impacts of what that relocation would mean in terms of cost and benefits as well for the European economy. And we can expect that working group to consist of regulators, market infrastructures, broader market participants, end users. And we can expect questions which are likely to be asked in the group will focus around the how rather than the if when it comes to the relocation. It's also important to recall that there is some flexibility in the interpretation of the conditions associated with the EU's temporary recognition of UK CCPs. It refers to the need for there to be a reduction in exposures by EU counterparties to UK CCPs, sometimes referred to as significant reduction, sometimes just reduction. But what constitutes an adequate reduction in this time frame leading up to mid-2022 yet to be defined? So we're on a very significant journey, and we really don't know where the exact destination is going to be on this. It remains unknown. I think you would be hard put to find anybody who could hand on heart tell you where this is ultimately going to land. But trajectory, intent on the EU side, it goes to the highest political levels beyond the repercussions for market participants coming out of this battle over the location of clearing there are going to be really significant political repercussions. So if you hear people talking about the normalization of relations between the UK and the EU on financial services, while we've got a debate of this magnitude taking place in the background, well, people are going to have to recalibrate their expectation. It is very, very hard to see how anything other than an intense rivalry is going to be the predominant theme over the coming months with this going on in the background. I take your point. And I think uh, when the European Commission recently released its new communication entitled The European Economic and Financial System Fostering Openness, Strength and Resilience, that sends a clear message on on direction. Now, Now, this document seems to align the banking union, the capital markets union, and focus the narrative on promoting the euro as a really a reserve currency. Yes, it is the second largest out there, quite significant, but they really have doubled down on this. Now, this might be an aggressive agenda, but it, it sends a clear message on how policymakers are thinking about the future of financial markets, which which you've kind of touched on in, on these questions here. The magnitude of the question and or the mission Getting a hub for European or Euro-denominated derivatives liquidity will take time and it will be a concerted effort to ensure that the necessary regulations are in place. How do you think the EU's capital markets union and other measures are being developed and will they achieve this goal? Okay, so there are a lot of elements in that, Scott. And I think also we need to look beyond the pure dynamic around Brexit when we discuss this. You can go back to 1999 and... Eurozone authorities were talking about rivaling the dollar right from inception. Where are we today? We're in a situation where when you look at official sector reserves globally, euro-denominated assets count for about 20% compared to 60% for the dollar. So there's a long way off uh, from equality. 
So this discussion has been going on for a while. And as you say, it's not an insignificant second reserve currency globally. But I think it's important to realize something new is happening. So we've been talking about the interest for the European level of developing a reserve currency linked to all the traditional factors, lower funding costs, lower hedging costs for European companies. But something has changed. And one of those factors was Europe's experience under the Trump administration, where the US used the dollar payment system to sanction European as well as American businesses and banks dealing with countries such as Iran. So we have that sanctions trauma where Europe felt the dollar was weaponized. And we also have the more recent experience linked to the dash for cash in the COVID crisis, where availability of dollar funding for European financial institutions was seen to have financial stability implications. So what are we expecting in terms of formal actions in the pursuit of international role of the euro? I think we can expect the usual consultative, facilitative stuff, you know, asking traders in energy markets to price contracts in euros, increasing transparency of euro-denominated bond markets, talking to companies about why they invoice in dollars, so on. We might also see a bolder step when it comes to public sector initiatives to champion key elements which you'd associate with a reserve currency where the EU feels there's a lacking, such as in the space of euro indices and benchmarks. But I think when it comes to reserve currencies, you have to go to fundamentals. And the challenge for Europe has always been re-denomination risk. And that has hobbled Europe's advance when it comes to the euro as a reserve currency. And the single biggest move in this regard has been the joint issuance of euro bonds as a result of the recovery fund, as well as this growing pool of euro-denominated green assets. So you were talking about capital markets union, banking union, these initiatives. Remember how many centuries it took to develop the system we have today in the US. We're talking about a huge integration project in Europe, different legal systems, different fiscal systems, lack of consistently funded pension assets. We all know the list which needs to be tackled. And some might scoff at the plans afoot because they're going to be too slow. And it is true that in the short and medium term, we are not expecting a rival to the dollar as a reserve currency. But I think that would be missing the broader picture and the broader point that there is a longer term patient strategic objective set by Europe with ever increasing set of incentives to pursue that objective and evidence that on the really material stuff, such as mutualizing at a fiscal level to issue jointly debt instruments, they're making progress. Donald, let's shift to the broader EU financial regulatory agenda. Several important 
policy developments are expected to come this year, including the rollout of the final Basel measures through the new capital markets requirements, a review of MIFID II and MIFIR, and new initiatives on sustainable finance. Let's kind of reverse the question I've asked you about the European perspective. Do you think all of these developments will be mirrored in the UK? And do you anticipate different policy or priorities uh, to these approaches? And and how, how do you think their agendas might diverge? Well, I think in the question, you have the answer, Scott. And if you refer back to what we've just been discussing, what is the prize from the UK's perspective in mirroring alignment with the EU financial regulatory agenda, particularly in the absence of market access as being the reward for that alignment? As a starting point, the incentives are shifting away from alignment. However, even were those incentives in place, there is a certain inevitability around that divergence. For one thing, the UK won't be represented around the table and have traditionally had a material influence over the direction of European financial services policy, even if UK politicians wouldn't like to admit it. And likewise, the interests of the EU27 are going to be shifting in a new direction and hence the orientation and the drivers behind their proposals. The UK has a different level of development of its wholesale market today, and it's not going to want to jeopardize that. So certain initiatives which are being discussed in the context of the MIFID review are very unlikely to be ones which the UK will want to accept wholesale. The same goes in the area of sustainable finance. The UK has copied across the extant EU law up to the end of last year on sustainable finance, but we've already seen significant difficulties in the area of implementation of that agenda at the EU level. And the UK is going to draw its own lessons from that, we can expect. And while still championing the agenda in the context of COP26, which is happening later this year in Glasgow, they're going to be looking for a pragmatic middle ground somewhere between where the Biden administration is probably going to be heading on climate finance and the more ambitious agenda of the EU when it comes to ESG integration into the financial system. You mentioned Basel, Scott. That's going to be a very big moment, very significant moment. You would have thought, given the granularity and the public pronouncements around that international rule book, that things are going to come out pretty close. But as we know, when it comes to capital calibration, the devil's in the detail. And here, too, we expect there to be some significant differences. So in summary, we have a set of incentives and drivers which necessarily, irrespective of whether there was equivalence or not, were going to be different. And in the absence of equivalence, there's a lot less binding the two agendas together and divergence is inevitable. Let's turn to people. Uh, and we have a saying in Washington that people are policy. Commissioner McGinnis has taken over from Vladis Dombrowski's. How do you expect her agenda to change from her predecessor? And where will, I assume, Brexit will sit right at the top of her priorities? So first off, I think it's really important to realize where Commissioner McGuinness sits in the architecture of the European Commission. There is a framework of executive vice presidents, and 
Valdis Dombrovskis remains executive vice president for financial services and capital markets union. It sits within his portfolio, even if his day-to-day brief is focused on trade. Ultimately, Commissioner McGuinness reports into Valdis Dombrovskis. So continuity will be the name of the game. We're not expecting material shifts there. It's also important to realize that Commissioner McGuinness has picked up the brief when we're already in that crucial phase of agenda setting over the first year plus of the commission. And so some of those tram rails have been set in terms of commitments for proposals. However, as you say, people are policy. And that is not to say that in some way, mechanistically, Commissioner McGuinness is going to be a mouthpiece or an extension of Aldous Dombrovskis. And she has already signaled very publicly her intent to give greater focus to the retail agenda. And given Europe's going to be overhauling retail investment as part of its capital markets union strategy, we can expect her to leave her imprint there. So really close alignment, hugging the trajectory already set by Executive Vice President Dombrovskis. But of course, there will be some differences in terms of personal emphasis. And you're saying Brexit right at the top of her agenda. I think that would not be at the top of her agenda. I think Commissioner McGuinness is going to be very much focused on the recovery post-COVID, ensuring mitigating effects associated with the build-up of NPLs. The last crisis showed that NPLs, if left out of control, can become a sovereign risk problem very quickly. Europe needs a proactive strategy to manage the financial aftershocks from what started as a healthcare and remains a healthcare societal crisis, has a strong economic crisis attached to it, and they don't want it spiraling to a financial and sovereign crisis. So economic recovery, navigating COVID, and what that means for the next steps in the integration of Europe and the euro, absolutely right up there, centerpiece of her priorities, as is the next steps of integrating sustainable finance into the financial system. There are some very ambitious steps ahead. This is seen as a strategic opportunity and advantage for Europe to get right. And the impacts of technological change, which equally, Europe is not coming as an incumbent financial center on the global scale that London has or New York. And there may be opportunities in the shakeup, which comes through technological disruption for Europe to steal a march globally. And in that context, the introduction of a digital euro could be potentially very significant. So there's a lot on the plate, but continuity is the name of the game. I'd like to finish with a broader question about what you do. You've lived and breathed EU policy for years, having previously worked with the European Commission. And some might say you worked in a pretty niche space, uh, EU financial regulation policy and strategy. What do you really enjoy about this job? As somebody who's really passionate about Europe, who believes in the richness of bringing together all that Europe represents, bringing those strengths together to the collective common good, it's a real privilege to have gone from theorizing about that to being able to participate in what takes place in this city in Brussels. History doesn't just happen each year. 
It happens even more often than that. It's a meeting place for people who want to cooperate, both between Europeans, but also increasingly other capitals around the world. And it's a story of coming together as opposed to division, which has blighted so much of Europe's past. So those who believe that more can be achieved together than through the path of fragmentation and separation find common cause when they come to Brussels. And it's a very special group of people who uh, occupy this community. And it's been a real privilege to be able to participate in that project. Now, would you recommend a career in financial markets to a young person today? Uh, And if so, what's the single most important piece of advice you would give to somebody entering the industry? Finance is absolutely fascinating. It is essentially at the DNA of our economies. Without finance, you don't get funding. You don't manage your risks, whether it's at a company level or at a personal level with your pensions. Consumers cannot transact. Payment systems are the lifeblood of commerce. So when finance works, our economies work and vice versa. So once again, this is a fascinating field to operate in. And I just say, in terms of a recommendation, anybody who is passionate about making a difference, about how our economies function, they have an absolutely amazing opportunity to make a difference through finance. I think that's particularly important when it comes to the issue of in the environment, social justice. When you have conversations with the young people today and they think about how the financing of the green economy or the transition to a new economy is going to occur and, and the scale and the cost of it, you can't do it without finance. And, and there, you can really connect the two. And it's always important to be passionate about what you do. And uh, people can certainly get passionate about these issues. Well, Donald, it, it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate your, your insight and your comments today. We're out of time, so we're going to leave it there. But thank you very much for joining us on The Swap. It's been great talking to you. Thanks a lot, Scott. Wow, you covered a lot of ground there. There was the discussion about some of the near-term expectations of equivalence, some longer-term relationship issues. For those of us who would like to see an effective and harmonized cross-border framework, there really wasn't a huge amount in there that was particularly positive. Um, Scott, how would you summarize all of that? I think in two words, uh, strategic rivalry. This is what Donald said, and he kind of articulated a case of why we are not going back to pre-2016 Brexit vote when the two sides diverged. I think the best we can hope for is that both sides recognize the opportunity of working together, uh, but it's not going to be the same market. It's not going to be the same structure. And we're just going to have to work through and identify where we have opportunities to harmonize the rules. But make no mistake, we're not going back to the old ways of doing things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, from ISTA's perspective, we, we've spent a lot of time focusing on um, cross-border harmonization, equivalence, framework, substituted compliance, etc. Having had that discussion, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future relationship and how it will impact derivatives? Do you think that we will get to a harmonized framework or, or we, will we end up with something a little different? It's going to be different without a doubt between the UK and the EU, but we do have a a body of work, a regulatory scheme that is largely 
headed in the right direction, but you probably will get, as Donald articulated, some very competitive uh, opportunities here. People trading differently, maybe some different money centers, which will require some new skills, some new infrastructure, and repositioning of people and services. So in that respect, it's going to be a challenge. It's not only between the UK and the EU. There's obviously the US that's going to play a big role in this. And we're going to have to work through these issues. It'll keep us all very busy for the foreseeable future. Absolutely. This is going to clearly be an issue that has further to run. But that's all we have time for today. Scott, thanks as always for your company. Brexit is, of course, just one issue that's keeping derivatives markets busy. So join us for our next episode when we'll be exploring yet another topic on the industry's to-do list. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.